Open your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 5 through 14. And if you're able to stand, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in all. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And so you, all, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Thank you. You can be seated. Okay, in the intro there, it says the Big Bang Theory. We're not talking about that TV show about the nerdy guys, if you've ever watched that, okay. Um, but what I'm talking about is this. I believe that when it comes to sanctification, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning, sanctification, I'll unpack that in a little bit, but... When it comes to sanctification, many Christians embrace this explicitly or implicitly. Now, when we talk about sanctification, just to start, that's the growth of believers into greater Christ-likeness. It's where who we are in Christ, as far as our position, increasingly becomes who we are in Christ as far as our experience in living. And when I was in seminary, and I'm not going to take a long time here, I wish I could, it was actually a fascinating lecture, but we spent a day looking at what have different Christians believed about sanctification. And many different traditions, which I'm not going to mention here, either explicitly in their direct teaching or implicitly in how they went about things, taught some sort of view where you get saved... You understand that Jesus is your Savior, and at some significant point, you have to have some type of experience where you then become, start becoming sanctified, a second experience after salvation. And he unpacked all these different groups. Now, many of us, if we come from a Baptist tradition, we didn't teach that explicitly, but implicitly through things like rededication through things like, well, I was saved and then I needed to fully surrender. Some people teach that even explicitly. Or things like, I used to have youth group students when I was a youth pastor, and their spiritual growth was at its highest point every summer when they went back to camp for a week. 
They always had to have that experience, and then they'd come back to normal life, and normal life would be normal life. And so my professor's unpacking all these, and then he says, here is what the reformers believed about sanctification. That means Martin Luther, John Calvin, and their successors. Last Sunday, we celebrated Reformation Sunday. They believed in the struggle theory of sanctification. And you know what? I heard that. He explained it. He said sanctification is progressive. It's growth. That's why if most of your church experience has been at East Cooper, you may not have embraced any of those big bang theories of sanctification. That's a good thing because actually here Buster talks a lot about progressive sanctification. But when he said that, a light went on. Number one, it's what the biblical data says. In particular, Romans Romans 7. Let's turn to Romans 7 very quickly here. Romans 7, verse 19. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Okay? So when my professor said that, yeah, I remembered. Romans 7.19. I don't do the good things I want to do, but I do do the bad things I don't want to do. That seems to be part of life. And I do believe, biblical scholars disagree, but I believe that Paul here is talking about the experience of a Christian. Okay? And we can't get into all the reasons, but he says something similar in Galatians 5.17. So, biblical truth and my life data said sanctification is a process and a struggle at times. So, I jumped on board with the reformers. Now, a little bit of review here. Remember the first week when I um, started teaching in Colossians, I said, Paul is writing to us as a physician of the soul, that this writing is a means of grace. And we talked about every single one of Paul's letters begins grace and peace, and it ends grace, that it's bracketed in grace. It's God's work in our life. And the peace part is that not absence of strife, but peace in the Bible means that God wants to bring things into alignment of the way he created us to be before sin entered the world. Okay, so Paul is writing to us as a physician of the soul that these words are a means of grace in our life. He wants us to know how we're sanctified. Okay, so my proposition for you this morning is real clear. It is God's will that you be sanctified. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is not Andy's idea, okay? My wife and I pastored a church uh, where... Probably at, at one point, small congregation, but, but probably uh, 80% of that congregation uh, was under the age of 30. And a lot of these young adults were trying to figure out God's will for their life. It's really interesting. When you get to be my age, um, as far as figuring out specific things, you just you look back and you go, I don't have a clue sometimes. But they were trying to figure out God's will for their life, and a lot of times it was grand and glorious things, you know. Um, and I would always take them to this first. Do you want to figure out God's will for your life? I can't tell you about the specific particular will that he may have you for have for your life, but I do know 
about the clear revealed will that he has for every unbeliever. First Corinthians, I mean, First Thessalonians, four three. For this is the will of God. What does it say there? Your sanctification. Do you want to know what the will of God is for your life? The primary will of God for your life is that you be sanctified, that you walk with him and he changes your life. Okay? So that's our proposition today. It is God's will that you be sanctified. So what does this passage say about sanctification? First of all, the roots of sanctification, okay? Live according to who you are in Christ. Now this is what Buster uh, taught you last week. We're just going to quickly review here. We're actually going to work backwards from verse 4 through verse 1. First of all, live according to who you are in Christ. Verse 4, it says that, let me get back to Colossians here and I'll tell you what it says. Okay, verse 4 says, when Christ is your Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now that in glory statement there is very key in glory it's talking about a place i believe in heaven where there will be no sin everything will be about god's glory but it's also talking about your glorified condition okay so we live according to the fact that we know what our future is Verse 3, we're working backwards. It says in verse 3, for you have died, that means you have died to sin, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And, and um, uh, you know, Buster talked about what does it mean to be hidden in, on Sunday in the sermon. Hid, to be hidden means both concealment but also safety. Okay? You are not yet glorified, that will happen in heaven, but you are secure, live like it, okay? Verse number, two, verse number two, set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, I have a couple cross-references, we're not going to look at them, but basically what 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 and Romans 8, 18 through 24 says is that we live our lives in light of eternity. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says what we are going through right now Whatever we're going through is but a momentary affliction. Now, it may feel like an eternal affliction, but the Bible says compared to eternity, it's a momentary affliction compared to the weight of glory that is set out before us, it says in 2 Corinthians. So set your mind on eternal things, not temporal things. Okay? And the, fi and, and the final thing, verse 1, set, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In other words, we're supposed to think about heaven right now. And heaven is the place at this very moment where everything happens according to the rule of Christ, where his rule is complete. There's nothing going on in heaven that is not according to the rule of Christ. We're supposed to think about that because we can have a taste of that now. So that's the roots of sanctification, okay? It's rooted in our justification by faith alone, okay? Buster talked about that last week also in the sermon this Sunday. 
The fruit of sanctification, verses 5 through 9a, is a changed life. You are not the same person you used to be. Now, for some of us, like myself, who grew up in a Christian home, who came to faith at an early age, look back, I believe I saw evidence of the fruit of that faith. I also see times where I veered off into the ditch one way or another, uh, but God was gracious. And um, so I don't have all these memories that Paul's talking about here where he's talking, writing to adult converts to Christ in a very secular, very pagan society that were involved in all sorts of what we would call, quote, big sins, okay? So... When we talk about having a changed life, you are not the same person you used to be. If you're an unbeliever and you've, and you've been converted in recent days, you may be able to look very clearly, boy, a year ago I was doing this, this, and this, and because Jesus saved me and the Holy Spirit came into my heart and gave me a new outlook on life, I don't do those things anymore. But for me, I have, can say the same thing. Okay, the fruit of sanctification is that I am not the same person I was 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 5 weeks ago in some ways. Hopefully in some ways 5 minutes ago. Maybe Lord's taught me something before I walked in here. But God changes lives and that's the fruit of sanctification. Okay? You are not the same person you used to be. And what does that fruit look like? Well, look what it says here. He says in verse 5, put to death strong words. No, no, no way of misunderstanding. Kill these things. Okay, and what does he tell us to kill? Well, first of all, look here, it says put to death therefore. That therefore is very important. Always pay attention to connecting words in the Bible. Now, actually, the order here in the translation, it doesn't necessarily make it clear, but what, what Paul is saying is, in light of the roots of your sanctification, who you are in Christ, now put to death these things, okay? And what does he tell us to put to death? What is earthly in you. Once again, we are not to live as we did before we understood Christ's heavenly rule. That's what this is all about, allowing Christ to rule our lives. I talk about sanctification like this. I think of our, 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 our lives a little bit as a country, and I talk, or, or a house, and I talk about sanctification is allowing Christ to rule increasingly in those regions or those areas of your life where he wasn't ruling before. Or if you think of a house, allowing him to live, rule in those rooms that he wasn't ruling before. Even that closet, which you never open because you don't want to see what's in there. Have any of those in your house where you just keep putting all, if you're, especially if you're a bit of a hoarder or a pack rat, you just keep shoving all the stuff in that closet. And you don't want to open that door if you don't have to. Okay? So... Um, so, so we need to um, live 
in response to what we know the rule of Christ should be like. And ultimately, again, how does life look in heaven? Not how is life going to look in heaven, but how does life look in heaven right now at this moment where Christ rules? We need to think about that. Okay, we don't want to live according to the ruler of this world. Okay, and that's Satan. So, put to death what is earthly in you. And then he begins to talk about a particular area. And he says, sexual immorality. And then he says, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness. Well, let's take that first word. Sexual immorality here is defined as any sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage. Okay? Turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Then what's the first thing Paul talks about? That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each one should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay, so first of all, what we see there is that this must have been an issue because two different churches Paul is writing to, he's tying it closely to their sanctification. Okay? But another reason we see that it's an issue is that actually in this passage in Colossians, all of the five things there that he's talking about even though we may not readily recognize it, they're all actually tied to sexual purity or lack of sexual purity. Paul is repeating something there for emphasis. Okay, So let, let me just say this. We live in a culture, and all of us would agree, where we are bombarded, much like Paul's culture, they were bombarded with all sorts of messages. Theirs weren't the internet and TV and stuff, but theirs were the way people lived in their day. We are bombarded with all sorts of messages that say God's good plan for sexual, physical intimacy, which is only in marriage between a man and a woman, is not really good for you. Okay, it's it's not going to give you what you really want. Okay, and so I think we do have to say before we go any further, if if this is an area that there is sin in our life, and we see from the Sermon on the Mount, it just doesn't have to be actual physical sexual sin. It can be the life of our minds. We need to deal with it, and. Women, I'm going to say something to you, and, and pastorally, uh, because this, this is now on my radar again. If you've read that book, Fifty Shades of Grey, and it's still in your house, you need to either run it through a shredder and you need to burn it. And if the movie's coming out, and why am I saying that? Because I know women in our church have read it. They've even pasted good things about it on Facebook, okay? Let's be honest here, Okay? It's a lie, as Buster says, it's a lie from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. Okay? And so I say that because I care. And, you know, I'm talking to women. If I was talking to guys, you all know exactly what I would talk about in our culture. Okay? But I don't have, but 
That is the women's version of porn. Let's call it what it is. Okay? And I'm not saying they better. I'm saying because I care about your souls. And there's, there's, there's older mothers in this church who have told me their daughters are reading it. Their daughters who go here. Okay? So I know it's out there. Got so that's just an example. But don't go anywhere in your mind or any other way where you step outside of God's desires for you in this. And here's how Tony Evans, the pastor, put it, and I thought it's so good. Physical sexual intimacy is like a fire in the fireplace. When it's in that fireplace, which is marriage between a man and a woman, it is a great thing. It gives beauty, it gives warmth, it gives light. Who doesn't like to sit near a fireplace, okay? But when that fire jumps out of the fireplace, and again, it can just be in your mind, okay, dissatisfaction with either where God has you if you're single or dissatisfaction with your, your marriage partner if you're married, when it jumps out of that fireplace, it can wreak all sorts of destruction. Things start burning up that weren't meant to burn up, okay? So Paul says, flee from those things. Why? Because at the root of it, the problem is it's idolatry. It's saying, I'm going to look for something very powerful that only God can provide for me. I'm going to look somewhere else. And in Hebrews, it talks about the fact that when we sin, it's an evidence in that area of unbelief. When we sin, what we're really saying to God, and this is part of sanctification and why sanctification is about faith and belief and not just doing the right thing. When we sin, we're saying to God, I do not believe you, you know what's best for me. At least, you know, we may not say that intellectually, but in our heart, that's what we're saying. Okay, so, on account of these, it says the wrath of God is coming. This is serious business. And here Paul says to them, again, because of their culture, in these you also once walked. Okay? So let's go on here. The next thing is um, a fruit of, of sanctification. You don't, he's talking to his people. A fruit of sanctification is you don't live the same way you used to be with regards to sexuality. And he's also saying then, beginning uh, in verse 8 and 9a, you don't live the same way you did with regards to relational sin. Let's look at those. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that is what you have put off with the old self with its practices, okay? Relational sin, and I believe Paul here is particularly talking to not just relational sin with every random person out there in the world, although as Christians we're supposed to try to live at peace with all people to the degree that we're able to, but I think Paul is talking particularly here about relational sin with biological family members, but even more important, because a lot of these people in following Christ, they were cut off from their biological family. He's talking about relational sin with spiritual family members. Once again, he says, put them all away. That means to take something off like you would take off dirty clothes. 
So we're talking about having a chili party at our community group on this Sunday night. And I was talking to um, Stacy Rains, who leads our group with uh, – Tyler and Stacy lead our group with my wife and I. And Kristen was in the room. And Kristen said, well, you're having a chili party. Are you going to have a food fight at the end of your party? I don't know where that came from, okay? <laughs> but she told me where it came from. We do that at Beach Project, okay? And first of all, I'm thinking – not in my house, we're not, okay? But think of that image. You just had a food fight with chili. If you, and, and Or maybe you've done this sometimes. I've done this back in youth, pastor days, some really crazy activity, and you get all muddy and dirty or full of this or full of that. And, 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 and what you're talking about is you just had a food fight with a 1,000 gallons of chili, okay? And, or you went to the grits festival and you dove in that tub of grits, if you know what I'm talking about, okay? When it talks about putting off things, it's talking about, and when, you know, maybe you've, it's just been working in the yard or whatever, but that time when your clothes are filthy and you can't even really walk in the house. In my house, it means I walk into the laundry room right off the garage and take them off right there, okay? That's what Paul's saying. Put them away. Take off your dirty clothes. Now, it's very interesting because here again, relationally, he has five more sins. He's using repetition, but he's actually in the flow of thought in this passage using repetition of repetition to drive these points on. He's saying, this is important stuff for you to deal with. Sexual sin and relational sin, okay? And what he says in verse 9 is, do not lie to one another because it is inconsistent with the new creation in you, in verse 9. See, if you do the things in verse 8 relationally to other believers, okay? If you sin against other believers relationally, what you are really doing is you are lying about your understanding of the gospel. You do not get it if you are habitually surrounded by bad relationships with, the believe, with believers and you're contributing to that, okay? I mean, I'm thankful. <laughs> Seriously, at East Cooper, you know, I've been in churches where there's people that haven't been speaking to each other for 20 years against something that was really stupid happened 20 years ago. Okay, so we go on, and this is the important part. How does sanctification happen, okay? First of all, turn to the back of your handout, and you see from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, Buster shared this in sermons many times, but it's very important that we understand the difference between sanctification and justification. Justification is our legal standing. Sanctification is our eternal con internal condition. Um, justification is once for all time. Sanctification continues throughout life. Justification is entirely God's work. In sanctification, we cooperate. That's very, very important because I think one of the great things of understanding the gospel is you understand how much you need God's work in your life. But one of the misunderstandings about sanctification is that somehow we can just sit back and it just happens to us. And I, I, there are some Christians out there who want to guard the gospel so much that that's what they say. 
and, and they'll say the way we're sanctified is really just keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. You got a sin problem? Just keep telling yourself verses 1 through 4, who you are in Christ. Now, David Powelson, who is a, a biblical counselor, says that isn't realistic because God doesn't choose to work in all our lives in the same way. Again, I'm talking to women. If you, if, 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 if you, and I don't believe any of you hopefully are living this way, but if you had a drinking problem and a cocaine problem and you beat your husband and cheated on him and, um, and you neglected your kids and you spent money you didn't have, I do not believe that sanctification would come up about just by waking up in the morning and saying, you know, if I just keep telling myself who I am in Christ, I will stop all those things. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I had a friend who became a Christian and was immediately delivered from a cocaine addiction. Sweetest guy you'd ever know. You'd never believe that he was addicted to cocaine. Executive chef went to the best cooking school. That's part of that business, unfortunately, often. But you know what happened about three months later? God convicted him that he had to quit smoking cigarettes. And he thought, oh, man, God delivered me from cocaine. Okay, God, I'll quit smoking. God decided to let that be much more of a struggle with him because God knew there were going to be more things he was going to struggle with often sins that other people committed against him. So we cooperate in this sanctification thing. And one size in one sense doesn't fit all. God's going to use means for you that he may not use for other people. The biblical data also doesn't say, well, just tell yourself who you are in Christ. The Bible is full of imperatives, things we should do. In the New Testament, after the Gospels, after the death, resurrection, and ascension. And I look at those as great, God. You are telling me what's good for me. Okay? So we cooperate. Justification is perfect in this life. Sanctification is not perfect in this life. Justification is the same for all Christians. Sanctification is greater in some than in others. Okay? That's just the way it is at any given time. Sanctification is the fruit of our salvation. And we need to be very sober about the fact, especially in our own lives, if we don't see any fruit, or if we've never seen any fruit, God, please, do I really understand the gospel? But understand as you look at other people, they may not be growing at the same rate you're growing at. Do we want to spur each other on? Yes, but I had a pastor that said, you know, by, your, by their fruit you shall know them. So we need to look for fruit. But he said, don't become a fruit inspector, okay? Not everybody's fruit may always be grade A, okay? So, okay, so let's keep going here. I have to wrap up. So we're talking about sanctification. We're talking about how does sanctification happen. Here's what it says here. It says this. Put off the old self with his practices, the, end, the second half of verse 9, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. Okay? So here's how sanctification happens. Here it says, put off the old self, put on the new self by renewing your mind. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, we won't turn there, but it basically says, put off the old self, put on the new, put off the old self, renew your mind, put on the new self. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, don't be conformed to the world, that's the old self, but be transformed, that's the new self, by the renewing of your mind. Those same three things Paul says in all three passages, okay? Here's what the Puritans called it. They called it mortifying the flesh and vivifying the spirit, okay? Or Larry Crabb, in a book referring to the Puritans, being very practical, says, you know what? Stop doing the bad stuff and do the good stuff. And that's very important. It's not just stopping doing the bad stuff. It's doing the good stuff. How do we know what the good stuff is? By getting into God's word. Years ago, uh, a bunch of church leaders in a church I was in, we were all given the, the, um, the task by one of the elders, uh, and he said, I want you to write, write a one-page document looking at your life, and the question was, how I change, okay? And so I put this answer down. At the end of the day, that one, it said, I change when my life is exposed to the Bible and people. That's how I change. And then over the years, I've refined it. Turn to the back of your handout there. This is Andy Boyer's sanctification diagram, Okay. Along the bottom, with the arrow going in one direction, you have the Bible and people. And what I mean by that is people who will spur you on to growth in Christ-likeness. Okay, and why have that an arrow going in one direction? That is something that we have uh, some control, if you want to say, in terms of the input of that. We can read our Bible. We can come to times like this where the Bible is being taught. We can listen to podcasts. We can expose ourselves to the scriptures. People, yes, we can choose to be with people who will spur us on to Christ-likeness. Now, you know what? I got the best job in the world. Because two, two days a week, Monday morning, and Tuesday afternoon, I get to get together as part of my job, Monday morning with all the pastors in this church, Tuesday afternoon with a smaller group of the pastors in this church, and Buster leads us, and often what he leads us in is things that spur us on to grow in Christ-likeness. He asks us the hard questions. We pray for each other. We pray for you. I have the best job in the world. You need to work harder at that. It comes to me, and uh, I'm blessed. And then on a, in addition to that, I have a men's group that I go to on, on Wednesday morning that's not made up of pastors, Wednesday noon that's not made up of pastors, because I need that too. I need to hang out with some guys who aren't pastors, and they need to ask me questions that pastors don't always think of, okay? So, um, but, so, so, you, so God's word and people. But you notice, that was my first answer. But as I thought and reflected over the years, I came up with this diagram. Okay, so on the top you have that arch-type thing, and that means God's sovereignty. You know, it encompasses everything. God works for everything to accomplish his purposes. That's what that arch means, okay? 
And God's sovereignty through the Holy Spirit, sanctification is a work of grace. If the Holy Spirit isn't living in our lives and working in us, it doesn't happen. We'd never want to be more Christ-like if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit and circumstances, which God is in control of, okay, even sinful circumstances, God uses them for his purposes. And as you see, so we got that big arch, God's sovereignty covers everything, and then all these things breaking in, all these arrows, okay? That's how you're sanctified. The part you do is the Bible and people, and you live, and the Holy Spirit works in your life, and God uses circumstances to grow you into Christ-likeness. So that is the, that's how sanctification happens, I believe, simply. And it says we're going to become after the image of our Creator, and that means what God intended us to be. We're created in God's image, and that primarily means we have a moral and an intellectual likeness to God. Okay, sin entered the world. That image was not erased, but it was very, very, very corrupted. So corrupted that as Larry Crabb says, sometimes even though we have a new creation in us, we don't always even recognize it. And we have to remind ourselves as Christians that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and that God wants to recreate us to be what he created us to be. Okay. Final thing, it says conclusion, I've went over. Can I take a few more minutes, Rose? Okay, because this is so important, it's a springboard for next week. It says conclusion there. In seminary, I said, never use the conclusion. To, they told us never use the conclusion to introduce new material, but I decided I'm going to break the rules this week, okay? Because I think the conclusion drives us home. The relational fruit of sanctification. See, we talked about that earlier, but Paul, this is so important, and we're going to see this next week. And I think you look through Paul's writing so much, he says, you do not get the gospel. Jesus says the same thing. Don't have time to go down that road. You don't get the gospel if there's not relational fruit in your life that gives evidence of that. You don't get the gospel if you're at odds with everybody all the time, okay? Or some of the time, or most of the time, or whatever. But relational fruit of sanctification, verses 12 through 15. Let's go through this quickly. First he says, um, well, verse 11. He says, here there is not Greek and Jew, uncircumcised and Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in all. Okay, So what he's saying there is you cannot have divisions in the body of Christ. And we read that they had divisions. We have divisions. Let me tell you this. Just one, one word there, Scythian. He put that word there for a purpose. Okay, Greek, Jew, slave-free. That may have not bothered people too much. Those were people they came in contact with every day. Scythians were violent, savage, uneducated, and considered inferior. They were to be invited and embraced in their fellowship. Okay? little side note. been some great articles that have been written, especially in the past couple years. The evangelical church, that's us, people who believe the Bible is the word of God and salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. We are losing the working class. We are becoming increasingly, especially white predominant evangelical churches, we are becoming 
upper middle class professional and the 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 the, the working class in this country and they, this is happening in the church, but it's also literally happening. Great books. Buster read one of them and told us about it. I read some articles on it. Our country is literally being fragmented along those lines. And what we're seeing in, in the working class in our country is increasingly higher and higher rates of failed marriages, illegitimate children, drug and alcohol abuse. I think we need to ask ourselves, are we a respecter of persons? Are there divisions there that shouldn't be? I don't have answers for that, okay? It's not a simple thing. I, I was involved in urban ministry for years, and there you have all sorts of other really tough divisions along, along socioeconomic lines. And But I'm telling you, we, we have to ask ourselves the question, what, is there something we should be doing? No divisions in the body of Christ. Then he says this. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion and hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. Put on then. Again, What's the bad stuff to put off? The bad stuff is the stuff we talked about before, all those relational sins in verses 8 and 9. Put on the stuff listed here. I think you could sum that up. Learn to practice the four G's of biblical peacemaking. And they are, when you have conflict, it's an opportunity for God to work. First G, glorify God. Second G, get the log out of your own eye. You're not going to glorify God if you don't get the log out of your own eye. Third G, gently restore. Galatians 6.1, if somebody has been found in sin, restore them gently. Fourth G, go and be reconciled. Do what it takes to work it out. Real confession, real forgiveness, okay? So put on those type of things. And then Paul summarizes here, verse 13. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. That's a huge bar. One of my mentors in ministry, and I can be pretty thick-headed sometimes, older pastor, denominational leader, would often challenge us younger pastors, and he'd ask this question, what does it mean in Colossians where it says you're supposed to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you? In fact, he loves me so much that he even asked this question at my three-hour ordination council. And I don't think I gave him a good answer then. I know now why he kept asking that question of us. If you don't forgive other people, if I fight with my wife and I just never, you know, I don't get over it and I don't let her know I forgive her if there's some way she's sinned against me, I don't get the gospel. Because it says we're supposed to forgive each other as God has forgiven us. And God has forgiven us lavishly. And we can't withhold any forgiveness from anybody. Now, I'm not saying there's people that sin against you, that hurt you, that, 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 that at times it can be an unsafe, that you're just supposed to say, hey, let's go back and have the best relation. But what I'm saying is what's going on in your heart? Are you willing to forgive people who have sinned against you? And that means, are you willing to release them from the debt, whatever debt you're holding heart that they owe you? Okay? Because if you don't, you don't get the gospel. And basically, we don't get the gospel. 
That's why in, 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 the, in, when, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about the Lord's Prayer, he says, if you haven't forgiven others, God won't forgive you. That's not salvation by works. Jesus is just saying, if you consistently have never forgiven others, you don't really get the gospel. You're not forgiven. He's using hyperbole to drive the point home. So there needs to be relational fruit of sanctification. We're going to talk about this more next week. But the, finally, it says put on love. And one of the things I found for me to put on love, and from 1 Corinthians 13, love seeks the best of others. At the end of the day, that's when I know I'm putting on love. Am I seeking the best of others? Mark Dever, who's in a healthy church, and they don't, I don't think they really have worship wars, you know, where people were fighting over style, but he said there's only one type of worship war I ever want in our church. It's when the older people are saying, Pastor, we need to do more new contemporary songs because that ministers to the young people. And the younger people are saying, Pastor, we need to sing more of, more of the older hymns because that ministers to the older people. That's seeking the best of others. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you want to see us be sanctified. That you don't want us to remain where we're at because it's not good for us and you love us and nobody seeks our best like you do. Help us to apply these things to our lives. As the women study this passage this week, I hope they go way beyond anything I've said and come to a great, deep, liberating understanding of this passage. And as they talk about this next week, I pray that they have a lot better applications than I did. And as they talk about their passage today, right now, Lord, may it be a sweet time where it is an example of the working out of sanctification as God's work in these small groups with these people are being all mixed up in a great sense with your Holy Spirit and with their circumstances. Amen.